Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. It sometimes seems to me that we have a somewhat unhealthy obsession with food in our country. If that is true, then some posts I would like to share with you from Pinterest probably underline that reality. For the uninitiated, Pinterest is kind of a virtual bulletin board, a place where users can go on and and post videos and pictures and statements. So from that virtual bulletin board of Pinterest, here we go. Here's the first one. Beauty comes in all shapes and sizes. Small, large, circle, square, thin crust, thick crust, stuffed crust, and extra toppings. Or this one, I hate brushing my teeth at night because that signifies you can't have any more food and I'm just not ready to make that kind of commitment. (laughs) Or what about this? This is one I agree with. Why does cooking take like six hours and eating like three seconds and washing the dishes like seven days and seven nights? (laughs) And I really like this perspective. Chocolate comes from cocoa, which is a tree. That makes it a plant. Chocolate is salad. (laughs) Or can you relate to this one? Accidentally went grocery shopping on an empty stomach, and I'm now the proud owner of aisle five. (laughs) What about this one? My favorite exercise is a cross between a lunge and a crunch. I call it lunch. (laughs) And then finally this one. This one quite honestly left me thinking. You can't have a full life on an empty stomach. You can't have a full life on an empty stomach. You can't have a full life on an empty soul. There are two miracles that are reported by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two miracles. The first is the miracle of the resurrection, that event that parted history in two, that moment that changed all our yesterdays and changes all our tomorrows. Every gospel writer caps off the gospel with the resurrection. But there's a second one. The second miracle reported by all four gospel writers has to do with food. We commonly call it the feeding of the 5,000, though in all honesty, there were more than 5,000 people there. 5,000 refers to the men in the crowd. But we call it the feeding of the 5,000. That miracle also is reported by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which ought to underline for us that there is a great degree of importance attached to that event. There's a second event, 
somewhat similar to it. This one reported only by Matthew and Mark called the feeding of the 4,000. It's those two experiences that we join together in this simple, short, two-part series entitled simply, Hunger. Today, we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000, feeding the hunger of the soul. Next week, Pastor Tyler will lead us in looking at the feeding of the 4,000, feeding the hunger of the body. So we turn to the feeding of the 5,000. The setting was a very sad one. Jesus had just received some very tragic news. The story just previous to this one, particularly in Matthew, but in other Gospels as well, is told in a very poignant way. It says that Herod arrested John and ultimately had him beheaded. At that point in time, the, the text says, the verse says, that the disciples of John went and gathered up his body and took it and buried it. And then comes a very poignant statement. It says, and they went and told Jesus. Where else could they go? To whom else could they turn? What better place to go when your heart is broken? They went and told Jesus. The verse immediately following that says that Jesus departed for a solitary place. Jesus wanted to be alone. We can understand that. You receive tragic news. A dearly loved one has not only died, but has died in a sudden and tragic and graphic way. Grief causes us, causes us to pull away. It's an isolating kind of experience. People often want to be alone. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus wanted to. It just tells us he received the news, and immediately he said, let's go to a solitary place where we can be by ourselves. He wanted to be alone. Why was it to think, to grieve, no doubt, to pray, certainly, to be alone with his heavenly Father, to ponder what the death of his forerunner meant for his own life in ministry. The bottom line was he wanted to be alone. Being someone whose temperament leans decidedly in an introverted direction, I can understand that. I can also understand the difficulty of the experience when you need to recharge your batteries. You think, I'm going to have some time alone, and suddenly you don't. It's more people. And that's precisely what happened to Jesus. The ever-peering, ever-prying eyes of the crowd saw him leaving with his disciples. They deduced from the preparations they saw and his departure in the boat exactly where he was going to land, and they ran there and met him when he landed. Rather than being irritated and frustrated, what, more people? Jesus began to minister, to heal, to teach, to touch. And so the people stayed and stayed and stayed. It's finally his disciples who say, Jesus, we've got to end this. It's time for the benediction and the postlude. Let these people get over to Olive Garden or home or wherever it is that they're going to find food. Let them go. 
So we read the story. Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse 13, says this. When Jesus heard what had happened, that's the death of John the Baptist, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, gave thanks, and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. For all of its incredible nature, the story is really quite simple. Big crowd of people, they stay long because of Jesus' teaching and healing. By the end, they're ravenously hungry. There's no place to turn for food. The disciples say they're hungry. Give them to eat whatever you have. It becomes enough. And they go home satisfied with full bellies and wondering hearts about what they've just witnessed. Simple story for all its incredible claims. Except that there's more than one layer, more than one level to this story. John in his gospel makes that clear because he focuses on the spiritual nature of what happened. The people have eaten they're satisfied, and Jesus begins to talk to them about the bread of life. He says, the bread of life is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd says to him, evermore give us this bread. And then he utters those words, I am the bread of life. That leads him into a sermon which becomes one of the most controversial sermons he ever preached, by the end of which the crowds are leaving him in mass. There are so many people leaving that he finally turns to the 12 and he says, Are you all leaving too? To which Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? Where else would we turn? You're the one who has the word of life. John underlines the spiritual nature of this event. Because of that, as we picture the scene, we realize that Jesus is surrounded by people not just with bellies that are gnawing and growling, but he's surrounded by people whose souls seek some deep level of satisfaction. Might I suggest to you that it's no different today? That we are surrounded, whether it be in our neighborhood, at our place of work, at the gym where we work out, 
Everywhere we go, we are surrounded by people, not just physically hungry, possibly, but people who have searched for a satisfaction at a deep soul level that they have as yet been unable to find. And because of that, and because of Jesus' presence with them, I find a statement the disciples make to be very curious. Very curious words they speak. They're the ones, after all, who point out to Jesus, it's time, Jesus, let them go. They've got to get food. Send the crowds away, they say. Send the crowds away. Let them go find something somewhere else that will satisfy, satisfy the needs that they feel and experience. Send them away. We can't do anything for them. We don't have the resources. We can't feed them. So send them away. I find that very curious. After all, here you are with Jesus. Jesus is right here. He's just been performing miracles. He's just been meeting the needs of those who come asking. He is in their midst, and they say, Jesus, send the crowds away. We can't help them anymore here. Is that curious to you? Do you ever wonder if we do something like that? People who come to us with needs physical or especially today spiritual, questions about God and life and Scripture, and our response is, send them somewhere else. We can't help them. We don't have the resources, the ability, the answers, the training. I haven't been to seminary. I don't have a theological degree. I honestly, I don't know this book as well as I wish I did, so send them away. Do you ever wonder if we say that? I think of a story told by a pastor named Steve Shogren. Shogren writes this, Not long after we moved into our first house in California, my wife Janie and I picked up on the tension between a couple of our neighbors. One was a very outspoken churchgoer, while the other was an unbeliever. I knew I was in the hot seat when the unchurched man struck up a conversation with me as we were both working in our yards. Say, Steve, aren't you a pastor? It seems explicit in the public's understanding that pastors exist to serve as referees in times of conflict. So I reluctantly listened as this troubled man opened up about the neighbor, neighbor he had never understood. He unfolded a long history of numerous conflicts over, honestly, small issues. Then he looked up and sighed. But the most recent problem takes the cake. We received a letter from his attorney threatening to sue us if we don't trim a tree that borders his yard. It seems strange he didn't just come over and ask me to take care of the tree before he went to his attorney. And then with a little wink, this streetwise unchurched man continued, You know, I was getting ready to trim that tree, but now there's no way I'm doing it until he forces me. 
I will gladly go to court just so I can have a story to tell about being sued by Christians over an orange tree. He summarized his thoughts with a haunting observation. I guess sometimes Christians love us. They just don't like us. Send them away, Jesus. We don't have the resources. We don't have the ability. We don't have the training. And on top of it, we don't even really like them. So send the crowds away. Now, what's even more curious than the disciples' statement, send the crowds away, is Jesus' response to the statement. Because in response to their direction, send them away, he says, no. You give them something to eat. You feed them. You handle it. You address it. You take care of it. Now, that's rather stunning to think about. To think about the fact that we are somehow supposed to be the ones to address what can sometimes be very deep, sometimes even overwhelming needs of others, especially spiritual needs. How are we supposed to do that, Jesus? We don't have all the answers, all the knowledge. How do we respond? I want to remind you of something. It's been a few months ago now, back in April to be exact, that we did something here at the church. We kicked off an initiative called simply the 12 People You Love. The 12 People You Love grew out of a, a long conversation, a lot of prayer, thinking, talking, in our discipleship ministries area of our pastoral staff. It grew out of that and out of Pastor Roy's idea later put pen to paper, and now we have this little book entitled The Twelve People You Love. Here was the suggestion of that simple initiative. The suggestion was many of us don't have all the answers. We're keenly aware of that. I was aware of it just this past week. Someone in my office thinking, I don't have the answer to this issue they're raising, this question they're asking. We don't have that, but we do have something. We do have something that ultimately may be more important in many situations to people whose souls are needy, who desire some form of human connection, contact, love, and mercy. We can be friends. We can make human connections. So the 12 people you love suggested you choose, choose 12 people. It doesn't have to be 12, but... Twelve people, and think about four domains in your life. Family, church, work, neighborhood. Think about 12 people from each of those domains. Write down their names and then do two things. Do two things. One, pray for them intentionally, thoughtfully, Daily, pray for them. Pray for God's presence and grace and peace in their hearts and their lives. Pray that they will know how to negotiate the twists and turns that life brings their way. Pray that God's grace would sustain them and capture them. Pray for them. And secondly, love them. Just love them. 
Do the kinds of things that friends do for friends. Love them with no hooks inserted, no strings attached, no agenda. Where you're trying to get them to do exactly what you want them to do. Think the way you want them to think. Just pray. And if God opens a door at some point in time, then pray for the wisdom to step into that space in the way that God would guide you to do so. The purpose for approaching it that way with the 12 people you love was simply to say, we don't want evangelistic outreach to be an event. We want it to be a lifestyle, a way in which we live our lives. That is within the grasp of every single person here. Pray for someone and then love that someone. And if God opens other doors, follow. That's truly important in the world in which we live. A world that views no worldview as better than any other. A world in which people push back strongly against any perceived attempt to evangelize them. That's the reality of our culture. In fact, let me share with you another reality. This is drawn from a Christianity Today article several years ago called The Craziest Statistic You'll Read About North American Missions. Here's the crazy statistic the author laid out. In North America, not only the United States, but Canada, in North America, the statistics that they have studied and now have arrived at are these. One in five people in North America does not know a single Christ follower personally. One in five. 20%. That's the craziest statistic, according to the author. So follow further the author's thinking. Now I read from the piece. The author says that's 13,447,000 people about the population of metropolitan Los Angeles or Istanbul. Worldwide, the numbers are much worse. More than 8 in 10 non-Christians do not personally know a Christian. But Christians only make up a third of the world's population. The United States, meanwhile, ranks in the top 10 Christian countries with 80% of the population identifying as Christian. The biggest factor in explaining why so many North American non-Christians don't know Christians is immigration. The U.S. attracts more Buddhist, atheist, and agnostic immigrants than any other country in the world. It ranks second for Hindu and Jewish immigrants and seventh for Muslim Im immigrants. But immigrants are also keeping the percentage of those who don't know a Christian from going higher. That's because the U.S. also attracts more Christian immigrants than any other country. And the reason that sends the most immigrants to the U.S. is by far Latin America, where 90% of non-Christians know Christians. So how are we to relate to such things? When Jesus says, you give them something to eat, you address their spiritual needs, how are we to relate to that? The article quotes Todd Johnson from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary's Center for the Study of Global Christianity. And I was taken by what Johnson had to say because I asked myself the question and I didn't like the answer I got. 
that I'm going to ask you. And that is, how many people do you know? Not just acquaintance. You wave when you're pulling out the garbage. You run into each other when you're picking up the mail. I'm talking about people that you know, people who are friends, who claim no faith in Christ. How many? Wasn't a good answer in my life. Maybe that's why I was so taken with what Johnson said in the article is what he sees as critical to that response, to that issue, critical response to that issue. Going back to the article, here's what he says. Johnson thinks America is suffering from a serious deficit of hospitality. It's contributing to isolated enclaves of believers and non-believers, he said, but it feeds on Christian attitudes that see, listen to this carefully, that see interreligious friendships merely as a vehicle for soul winning. He's saying too many of us see that kind of friendship with somebody of another faith. The main thing that drives this is I might be able to pull you over the line. Now, please don't misunderstand. Jesus says, feed them, reach out to them, share with them the good news of God's love. But let me ask you this. How do you react if you think you are someone's project? That somebody has befriended you with a hook? Johnson says, hospitality. We are missing hospitality. One more paragraph from the article. Johnson's family has found that relatively small gestures, such as inviting international students into their home for Thanksgiving, can provide a better basis for meaningful interaction than huge mission campaigns. You should really have lifelong friendships with Hindus, Buddhists, and so on, he said. It's so simple, and yet it means a great deal. You give them to eat, Jesus said. So what if we pray and love and nothing happens? Do you know what I would say to that? We're living the life Jesus calls us to live. Does he not call us to love? Does he not call us to prayer? Does he not remind us that God sees things as we never can see them? Is it not true that there may be seeds planted that bear fruit in eternity about which we will never know anything until we see one another in the kingdom of God? Maybe we make their life better here and now so that someday in some way God touches a heart with a memory and they are urged into the presence of Jesus. I read a story this past week. Pastor tells about, his name was Stephen Nordby, Massachusetts, tells about a young man he had befriended. The young man's name was Glenn. Glenn and Nordby were very dramatically different people. Age-wise, they were quite different. Career-wise, belief-wise. Glenn was a student, and he played his guitar and sang in bars and restaurants as a way to make a living. That's the way he 
enjoyed life, but also the way he helped pay his school bill. But they would have conversations. They would meet, and they would talk, and they would sometimes talk about the deeper realities of life. In one of those conversations one day, Glenn told Nordby about an experience he had had when he was playing at a restaurant. He said, after I finished the set, a group of young adults pulled me over to their table, said, come and join us. We sat down. We fell into conversation. And then he said, it was as though they surrounded me and began rather vigorously talking to me about faith. And God, he said, I disagreed with them. I disagreed with what they were saying, but that didn't appear to matter. Finally, I got so uncomfortable, he said, I just stood up and, and, and left. It was very upsetting to me, he said. Norby, as he was listening, he thought, well, you know, the interesting thing is, I philosophically agree very much with what those young men and women of faith were saying. And so he said to Glenn, well, you know, the truth is, I, in my mind and heart, I probably have much more in common with them than I do with you. We've had many of those conversations. Norby said, I was struck. I probably will not forget Glenn's answer. When I said, we've had many of those conversations, Glenn said, yeah, we have. But you listen to me. You listen to me. In other words, there's an underlying level of respect, of care, of friendship that goes a long way in solidifying that kind of relationship. Jesus, send them away. Send the crowds away. We don't have anything. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You give them to eat. And then he begins to dispense from the meager supply the food sufficient to feed the multitude. We're called to feed them, friends. That is that to which he calls us. If your question is how, maybe the answer to how is two things, pray and love, and allow God to open the doors God may wish to open. I'd like to read you the words of Leith Anderson. Leith Anderson is a former pastor and current president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He writes of an incident back during his pastoral ministry, an evangelistic strategy, I suppose you could call it, of a woman named Kathy. Anderson writes, she was a successful stockbroker in Minneapolis who easily made friends and had the gift of evangelism. She used to go to the pool at her apartment complex, settle on a chaise lounge, read a book, and eventually strike up a conversation with whoever sat next to her. Soon the two would become friends, and then Kathy would begin talking very comfortably about her Christian faith. Bringing newcomers to church was her regular practice. She was so good at this that she was invited to serve on the church evangelism board. When she came to me and asked me what I thought about the idea, I said, that's a ridiculous idea. Why would we put someone who is so good at sharing in a room for hour, hours with people who are already Christians? Why would we do that? Let someone else serve on the board while you sit out by the pool. In other words, take what God places in your life 
the gifts that he has given you in the same way the disciples received the food from the hand of Jesus and disseminated it to those who were hungry. Just take from him and give to others where he has placed you in the way that he has gifted you with the friends that you have. Pray for them. Love them. And so the disciples say, Jesus, we can't handle this. We don't have the resources, the ability, the know-how, so send them away. Send them somewhere else. And Jesus says, no, I'm not doing that because this is your call, your mission. You need to be actively involved in this. In fact, Jesus had more, no doubt, than just that day in mind. As is pointed out by a New Testament scholar who says this, Jesus was illustrating the kind of ministry the disciples would have after his departure. They would be involved in feeding people, but with spiritual food. The source for their feeding would be the Lord himself. When their supply ran out, as with the bread and fish, they would need to return to the Lord for more. He would supply them, but the feeding would be done through them. That's us. He calls us to the same task, the same duty, to withstand by the power of his spirit the temptation to send people somewhere else. Send them to the teacher. Send them to the pastor. Send them to the neighbor. Send them somewhere else. He looks at me. He gazes at you, and he says, no. Because every child born into the kingdom of heaven is born a missionary, willing and able to share what has been placed in their hands with the needy around them. That's his call to us. He's given us a mind with which to pray, a heart with which to love, and a circle of friends, maybe 12, for whom to pray and act. If you don't have a copy of the little book, The Twelve People You Love, stop at the Welcome Center on the way out of church today and pick one up and go home. Make it a prayerful, intentional process of asking God to guide. He's placed food in our hands. Now, It's up to us. Gracious God, we thank you for the riches of the mercy and the grace of Jesus. We thank you for the love we have experienced through the Spirit. And we thank you for friends and opportunities to love without hooks, Make lifelong friendships. We pray that you will guide those wherever you would have them go and that the power and the strength of your Spirit would guide our footsteps. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.